This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, part two of our conversation with the voice of Formula One, none other than Martin Brundle. Plus, Nigel Woodward from CMC Classic Motorcars in Bridge North tells us how you could win one of our limited edition pairs of Jaguar E-Type cufflinks, plus all of your technical questions answered and more motorsport memories from Richard West. JECpodcast.com Hiya, Wayne Scott with you. I hope you're well wherever you are listening to another episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. We like to keep everyone in touch, so do give us a shout via the contact page at jecpodcast.com. Just like John Reed did, he dropped us a comment on our episode page, and he says, I really enjoyed the podcast about E10 fuels and the future, but the highlight was Graham Searle's recollection of the history of the club. Graham's enthusiasm explaining the history and details of the early days were really interesting, in particular when he and Nigel took the then new XK8 cars for a tour around the UK wondered what the public and indeed Jaguar owners at the time thought of these as yet unavailable beauties. A really great listen. Well, thanks, John, for that message. And uh, you can, of course, drop your message to us as well. jecpodcast.com. Just click on the contact button there, or you can leave your comments underneath each individual episode. And if you want to hear that history of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club episode that John's talking about there, that is episode four of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. So thank you, John. If you're joining us for the first time, by the way, this podcast is put together by the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, the largest Jaguar club in the world and one that's been around and growing since 1984. If you're not a member, you should consider joining because not only is it an amazingly friendly bunch of people, like me, of course, it's a really great community of truly passionate Jaguar fans that support each other with technical advice and it also offers loads of great deals for you as well. Discounted car insurance, Jaguar car parts, for example, and a packed calendar of events and driving tours that you just won't find anywhere else. Plus, you get fabulous monthly glossy magazine rammed with interesting articles and technical how-tos. Not to mention all the cars and parts for sale in there as well. So do come and join us. We'd love to have you in the family and it's really easy. Just click the join the club button at jecpodcast.com. Now though, we've got a pair of stunning E-type cufflinks to give away to one of you our podcast listeners. Here to tell us more though first is Nigel Woodward from CMC Classic Motor Cars in Bridge North, located in gorgeous Shropshire. And is it still gorgeous over there at the minute, Nigel? It is indeed, uh, Wayne. Yeah, the sun's out. Uh, it's a lovely day out there. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And you're all back at work now at last, aren't you? We've got about 50% of the staff back now. Uh, we started back on Monday, Monday the 11th. We had a shutdown for about uh, about six weeks from the end of uh, end of March. Uh, it, was, it was the right thing to do. We needed to protect our staff and we needed to protect our customers. So, uh, But I'm pleased to say we're back and we're busy. Tell us a little bit about the history of CMC then and where the business came from and how it got to the huge scale that it's on now. So we've been in business now for 27 years. And the sort of uh, the, the sort of potted story, if you like, the, the short version is that uh, a gentleman called uh, Peter Newmark, who who'd be no, no stranger to a lot of people uh, from the world of uh, collecting classic cars, um, uh, set the business up really as a bit of a hobby business originally to look after his collection of cars. But it, it quickly 
sort of mushroomed into a into a commercial business and we started to restore you know lots of uh, lots of early e-types and you know really that's where we where we made our name um, sort of fast forward uh, to 2014 and uh, we moved the business into our current location so we're, we're currently in uh, five uh, adjoined units 60,000 square feet uh, and that allows us to uh, to look after you know every aspect of classic car ownership so sales service we're all under one roof engine build paint trim panel the whole lot all in one place um, and at the same time that we moved into the building um, Peter, who was still a majority shareholder at the time, uh, gifted the majority of the of the business to the staff. So, if you like, we're the John Lewis of the uh, <laughs> of the classic car industry, and uh, uh, so we're we're now an employee ownership trust. So, everybody that works here, that they, they effectively have got a, a buy into the business, and uh, we find that works really well from the point of view of sort of commitment from staff, and hopefully. Uh, it, uh, hopefully that works for our customers as well, you know, because they've got they've effectively got a shareholder working on their car. So, you know, it's a lovely thing and it works very well for us. Well, you've certainly got an impressive facility, and having had a tour around it myself, and by the way, CMC do open their doors to Jaguar Enthusiast Club members quite regularly for uh, we tours, do. and uh, you, of course you have your your open day under normal circumstances as well. Um, you can see always the the passion and the sheer attention to detail that your guys put into car restorations of all sorts and you you literally do do all sorts of things to all sorts of cars don't you oh absolutely i mean obviously jaguar is the theme for today but uh, and, it, and it's really where we uh, what we're famous for i suppose will happen in the past but uh, if you take a if you take a walk through the workshop today you will see several aston martins uh, there's a Buick down there, there's a Lancia, uh, we've got uh, a, a Mini, a couple of MGs, you know, it really is a, a real uh, sort of broad church of cars, you know, all the way through to some quite exotic stuff, including an absolutely unique uh, Aston Martin called Bulldog, which we've uh, just been commissioned to re restore, the only mid-engined uh, uh, Aston Martin road car uh, that was ever, ever produced. So, yeah, some interesting stuff. I think most people's sort of vision in their mind of a classic car restoration workshop is a kind of dingy tumble down shed in the middle of a farm somewhere mm. but uh, i mean cmc <laughs> you are nearly on formula one grade workshop st status here aren't you if you ever walk around does having that high-tech facility that you have make a difference to the work you're able to deliver is it needed it is needed yeah absolutely um you know you you, you need a clean organized um, you know, facility, and particularly when you're working on the scale that we work on. So, at any one time, we've got over a hundred cars here on site. Um, you know, if you're not organised, you know, we're taking a lot of cars apart. Some of them right down to you know the last nut and bolt. Uh, you, you know, you need to have good storage facilities. You need to be organised. You need to have clear workspaces. Um, it's the only way I know of working. So uh, that's the way we work. So yeah, absolutely. Do you find people put more pressure on their cars themselves to be ever reliable? You know, we're used to modern cars jumping and just turning the mm. key. Do you think there is a trend mm. towards expecting that from your classic as well, to a certain degree? Yeah, I think I think there is. I mean, probably one of the other things that's really sort of, uh, sort, sort, sort of come really come to the fore over the over the over the past decade, I suppose, is uh, you know the tours, the rallies, you know the slightly the cars being used for those sort of low key. Um, 
sort of com- competitive events where the car needs to be reliable. So um, the, uh, that's, that's definitely something which, uh, which, which is probably more to the fore these days than, than it used to be. I think most, I think most owners are, you know, are sympathetic to the fact that, if they, particularly if they've got an older classic car, it's, uh, um, you know, that comes with a, you know, a level perhaps of, of reliability that you know, one would have expected from a car back in the 1950s or the 1960s. But that shouldn't, you know, that's no excuse. There's no reason at all why those cars shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be reliable to use and um you know and, and robust and that's certainly what we aim to aim to do when we uh, when we look after somebody's car all part of a lifestyle choice that people make these days and uh, not only is part of that lifestyle going and seeing amazing places going on amazing trips in amazing cars but also looking amazing while you're doing it and you're helping us do that of course as well with these brand new cufflinks that you've uh, announced <laughs> that we have a pair to give away on this very podcast uh, keep listening to find out how you can win them uh, but how did this idea come around, Nigel? These are made out of uh, actual E-type, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. So, but but don't uh, you know, don't uh, don't worry. We've not uh, we've not wantonly destroyed any uh, <laughs> any components from a from a you know from a valuable uh, car. Yes, no no E-types were destroyed in the making of this podcast. We should you got, say that. <laughs> You've got it exactly right. So obviously, when we carry out an engine rebuild or restoration on a on a on an early E-type or any car for that matter. Uh, pistons are one of the items that uh, get replaced uh, uh, regardless really um, as a, as a wear and tear component so uh, so we 've obviously got a, a stock of uh, uh, of um or rather a store of uh, components that uh, we've changed out uh, over the decades as we've uh, restored cars and uh, yeah so so the story really is that um, I was approached um, by Icarus uh, who have got a uh, made their reputation by producing uh, cufflinks made from uh, components from uh, aircraft so uh, the Vulcan Vulcan bomber and I think they did a a line from uh, some tornado components as well and I uh, really like the idea of it. Uh, it looked like a uh, you know, fantastic product. And uh, I really like the, the link between the, the product and, and the heritage. And I thought that could appeal to, uh, to Jaguar owners as well. So uh, we had this, you know, we've got a, got a, a store of displaced uh, components, which, you know, would otherwise effectively be scrap. And uh, so we selected some Series 1 uh, 3.8 uh, fixed head pistons. And uh, they've been uh, melted down and cast, and uh, a, a very uh, uh, and the cufflinks were designed by Icarus, and they've been uh, 750 sets have been produced. Wow, incredible! And they look lovely. They're in this mahogany box, Thank nicely you. presented, and uh, they're just the perfect thing, of course, as we head towards the anniversary of the E-Type next year. Absolutely, yes, and they come. They come with a little certificate, so sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, which uh, certificate of their their originality and where they come from, and a little bit of background detail about the car. And it's a, yes, yeah, a very nice thing. It's a nice thing to own, nice thing for a gift. Absolutely. Well, a chance now for one of you to win a pair of these cufflinks, and all you have to do is answer via the contact form at jcpodcast.com this simple question. What, according to Martin Brundle, is the best racing car he has ever driven? Send us your answer via the contact form at jcpodcast.com and you'll be entered into a prize draw where one of you will be selected to win these superb cufflinks. 
If you can't wait until then, of course, you can actually buy yourself a pair from IcarusOriginals.com, a link to which was in this week's Friday Spotlight email. Good luck. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West continues his fascinating series looking back over his most treasured motorsport memories. This week he tells the story of a PR photo shoot where Martin Brundle raced a jet plane in a Jaguar for Tom Walkinshaw Racing. Once I joined Tom back in the January of um, 1989, apart from looking at all the corporate livery of the team and the way that we appeared and the team clothing and all the things that go around having a really professional looking race team, because Tom's words, and not mine, it was, in, when I joined in 89, it was getting a little bit dated, delivery on the car, the trucks and what have you. And in order to get this one through um, the Jaguar board, guys like Roger Putnam and David Bull and Ron Elkins, who at that time was the motorsport coordinator for Jaguar Racing, and of course, Sir John himself, John Egan, we had to come up with a program of 12 events. And there was going to be one media event per month. So, for example, we had a Silverstone track day when we put lots of journalists with Andy Wallace into an XR9 and ran. It was a big, tight fit for some of the guys who were quite big, like myself, to get in the passenger seat. But one of the things, Andy King, who's another long-term TWR employee and was very much involved in the um, TWR parade that we put on at Blenheim last year at the Summer Festival uh, in 2019, Andy and I were talking one evening in the office and he said to me, why don't, why don't we try and race a Jaguar um, fighter, an RAF Jaguar fighter against a Le Mans winning car? So we came up with actually two. We came up with Top Cat versus Tom Cat, which was uh, an F-14 swing wing um, tactical bomber in the States against an IMSA car. And in the UK, we came up with Jaguar versus Jaguar. And I mean, certain things that we did in those days, I once said to Bernie Eccleston, you know, what would you do? Would you do Formula One like you've done it over the past, you know, 40 years? And he said, well, you couldn't do it that way because the rules have changed. And that was very much the case with Jaguar versus Jaguar because Andy... King phoned RAF Abingdon in Oxfordshire and said, listen, we've got this really good idea. And at the time, that was still a tactical RAF base. We're going to race Le Mans winning Jaguar uh, with Martin Brundle, you know, the race winner, down the main straight at over 220 miles an hour. And we'd like to put it up against the Jaguar tactical fighter, which at that time was still employed, you know, around the Desert Storm campaign. What do you think? And they said, yeah, sure. You know, you'll you'll have to try and be mindful of the people on the housing estate at the end of the runway. Anyway, long story short, we, we liaised with the RAF, who thought it was a great idea. Uh, we, the guy who flew the Jaguar aircraft was squadron leader Mike Lawrence, a great guy. Got some great photographs of him in my personal library. And Andy King and myself, Martin Brundle and Kevin Lee and others from the TWR squad, we set about organising this event. Now, bearing in mind, this was the XR9 that had won Le Mans. You know, it had a spanner check and a set of brake pads and one or two other bits and pieces. And on the appointed day, we went down early in the morning to RAF Abingdon and uh, we met Mike Lawrence and we went and all, you know, being, motor racing people love fast jets and fast jet people love motor racing. So it was a great marriage of minds. And we, we had a look around the Jaguar fighter and, uh, you know, Mike came and had a look around with Martin around the XJR9. And we lined the, the XJR up at one end of the runway And we tried a couple of times, you know, with Mike in the distance on a radio to try and get him to come in over the threshold of the runway at the point where we thought it was applicable. But either the Jaguar won by country mile or the Jaguar aircraft disappeared into the distance. And there wasn't this amazing photograph that we were trying to get of the car, of the plane going over the top of the car. 
which ultimately went on the front page of the independent newspapers, I remember it. Anyway, Andy King came up with a great idea. He said, I'll go and park at the far end of the runway in my XJS. And when I see Mike Lawrence coming, you know, out of the clouds on the circle before he puts the afterburners on, I'll flash my lights at Martin Brundle. And when he sees my lights flash, he'll know it's time to drop the clutch and set off. So Andy King went down to the far end of the runway in his XJS sitting there in absolute comfort, you know, with the air conditioning running. So it was a warm day, as I remember. We saw the Jaguar coming round on its circuit, you know, and it needed refueling several times, but it came round on its circuit, and we thought, this is going to be the one. So uh, Andy King sat at the end of the runway, and uh, he flashed his lights, and you could see this Jaguar with all the flaps down and, you know, the reheat coming on. And Brundle obviously dumped the clutch and was off down the runway. And these, these, uh, I was down by Andy King, and these two things were racing towards us, approaching 220 miles an hour. And literally, as they went over the finish line, the Jaguar, about six feet behind, went over the back of the Jaguar aircraft, went over the back of Martin, absolutely flat out in the Le Mans car. And Andy King said he sat there in his XJS and he said he couldn't make up his mind whether he was going to front end it at 220 miles an hour or blown over in the jet watch as the plane went over the top of the XJS and disappeared into the distance. But it, it was a fantastic piece of PR. And at the time, it got national coverage. I mean, it's been done since by Top Gear with Richard Hammond. Red Bull have done it since in F1. But it was unique at the time. And it was part of a series of programs that brought sports car racing into the public domain and we even went as far in the end as getting a bbc television series which compared porsche mercedes and jaguar and the amount of support that they received from the government in terms of their national automotive industry so great memories and it's it's not something i will ever forget seeing that thing go over the top of the xjr9 at over 220 miles an hour it was very impressive listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Well, as we do every week, it's time to have your technical questions answered now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And with me once again is Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Wayne. Business getting back to usual for you, I understand, at the moment? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. Things are, are really starting to pick up, actually. So, And a lot of people, I think, are starting to go back to work. So things are starting to move. Well, pleased to hear you're busy and pleased to hear that you're able to fit us in here on the podcast to get some of these questions answered. You can, of course, send us your questions via the podcast page at jecpodcast.com. Use the contact button there and the contact form or preferably leave yourself a voice message for us and we can include you on the show michael phillips is the first one in touch with us this week and he's talking about his four liter xj6 a 1995 uh, xjr that has a misfire my 1995 xjr was running well no messages when dry stored for three years but on recommissioning it had a single cylinder misfire and a message for the number five injector on removal of the injector it proved to be not operating uh, with a nine volt battery and a spray test so michael's uh, put in a replacement injector of the correct part number and tested it and it was all fully functioning the engine started straight away on all six cylinders except though for a rhythmic miss approximately every three or four cycles on a cylinder the misfire goes with rpm and does not vary 
and the original message is gone and there are no new messages that indicate any faults all the injectors appear by ear to be clicking and the plug show no variation in color can can we help him figure out what might be the cause of this misfire okay michael no no problem at all so it is um quite normal for you not to actually have fault codes um stored in the ecu for this model um with the early management systems they don't always pick up on um, pacific cylinder misfire straight away so um so my recommendations firstly would be to check the spark plugs i know you mentioned you have checked them but just double check you have got the correct ones fitted that is really important now there should be a champion rc12 ycc and the gap set to 0.38 now any other brand of plug they do that you can use an ngk um, but it can cause rough idle issues if they are incorrect now um, the other thing i would also um, suggest is that whilst the spark plugs are out to actually check um, visible conditions of the coils that's what I would be kind of hedging my bets to be with that intermittent misfire. Now, check for any hairline cracks on the coils. That would indicate um, a failure of one of the coils. And you can see if you can see any arcing on the side. That's also another common um, problem on that X300. And David Marks also confirmed what you said there about the spark plugs, of course. Uh, he says up to VIN 787953, uh, the Jaguar part number, this is a factory number, is EBC 11480. And from VIN 787954 onwards, it is EBC 8143. And they are the plugs specific to the XJR. Our next question comes from Ray Searles. I'd like to ask... Tom, a question about my 1999 XKR. Uh, actually, two questions. The first is it's got 111,000 miles on the clock, and I'd be interested in your opinion as to whether it would benefit from a process such as TerraClean. And then secondly, uh, I've read a lot about uh, being able to chip these engines, so I'd be interested to know what the options are in terms of being able to improve its performance, um, but still making it uh, relatively uh, good for road use. So uh, I don't want to go to the extremes of track use, but uh, it'd be nice to see if uh, one could get a bit more out of it if it was possible. Yeah, sure. No problem, um, Ray. So now I personally don't have any experience with the um, TerraClean as I haven't used or tested this process. Now, I can recommend a system we use here, which is designed by a company called Advantage Engineering. Now, when you service a vehicle, it's extremely hard to drain all of the oil and contaminants from the oil system. And over time, this can affect the engine's lubrication, causing accelerated engine wear. Now, the system that we use here connects to your oil filter housing and sump plug and then circulates a solution through the engine. Now, the machine runs a series of cycles, including running the vehicle from the machine. Now, this solution will dissolve any contamination buildup and then flushes back through ultrafine filters. Now, this process allows ability to remove virtually all of the carryover oil that typically all changes leaves behind. Now, clean oil contains less unburned hydrocarbons and fewer contaminants. This results in less friction and obviously cleaner oil means reduce emissions and smoother running engine. So it will obviously help with extending the life there. So that'd be my recommendations on that. Now, moving on to some of the performance options, 
there is quite a few options for the four litre. Um, now, the ECU does have limited tuning capabilities due to the age, but there is still another options, like I said. So probably the, the most popular and well-known is a supercharger pulley replacement. Now, most people replace the top supercharger pulley on the V8s, um, but with a four litre supercharger, the most substantial gains are actually from the lower crank pulley. Now, we can increase the size of the lower supercharger pulley by around 16%, um, which will give you sort of around 30 to 40 horsepower mid-range increase. Now, this is one of the big differences in performances between the later 4.2 model. So the 4.2 model does have a larger crank pulley from factory. Now, you can also go a step further by adding a smaller upper supercharger pulley as well. Um, but you will need to carry out some further modifications to do this. So, for example, the intercooler system um, will have to be upgraded before you do this, as um, when you are increasing supercharger drive ratios, you can cause sort of excessive heat intake temperatures. Um, so hopefully that's all clear. Uh, David Marks just wanted to add on this question that if you're going to chip an engine or improve its performance beyond factory, just make sure the rest of the car is sorted first. And that includes the gearbox, he says, which is a good point, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, gearbox service on those is pretty essential, to be honest. So um, we always recommend to carry out a full visual inspection before we carry out any performance work here to make sure everything's in good health. I also had some input into the TerraClean. You said uh, there's no experience that you personally have of this, but um, David Marks actually said that he tried it on his 2003 XJR, which was a very well-maintained car, and it made no difference at all. But he, he says that he's heard some people say how good it is and what difference it makes, and his idea on this is that maybe it all depends on how well a car or an engine has been maintained as to whether that produces a significant improvement or not i guess i guess basically he's saying if your engine's been well maintained it's pretty clean already it's not going to make a massive difference uh, compared to a really gunked up engine that's done a lot of miles yeah absolutely i mean um that's absolutely perfect advice to be honest is if you've carried on with the maintenance of the car all the way um you're not going to see as, as a, sort of a huge improvement with the terraclean brilliant uh, thanks as ever tom robinson from swallows independent jaguar answering all of your technical questions here on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast and we'll let you get back to uh, all of those customers cars that are stacking up out in the yard tom that's great thanks Wayne. you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk He's a household name to tens of millions of motorsport fans around the world as Sky TV's lead presenter in Formula One racing and one of the most experienced and accomplished drivers of his era. In the last JEC podcast, we heard some of his earliest memories of motor racing and how his career started, but in this episode, we pick up the story where he has returned to TWR from Formula One. And he tells us what winning Le Mans was like in 1990 for Jaguar, plus his thoughts on the current F1 season. Richard West, who was teammates with Martin, picks up the conversation just at the point where Martin Brundle has returned to TWR. Well, 1990, you were back, and in fact, again, I've dug all my files out. I was looking back at the press pack when we all did that photograph of uh, you with Andy Wallace, Jan Lammers, and Anferte. And of course, we had two cars then. We had the V6-powered car, and for Le Mans, we had the V12. The V6 was never quite what it was meant to be, was it? It was too complicated, uh, that mm. car. It had a lot of downforce. 
Um, Ross Braun was just beginning to join us now as well because oh, um, yeah. he was going to create the stunning XJR14 for the following year. They're probably the best racing car I've ever driven or ever I've ever raced, certainly. In fact, it is the best. Really? Yeah. But that's an interesting one. I saw the car recently. I actually saw one in the flesh being tested, you know, for something prior to the COVID outbreak. And I looked at it then and thought, what a remarkable piece of kit. What made it so special? It just had so much downforce. I remember the first time I ever met Ross Braun was at the TWR factory mm. at Kidlington. It was cold one night and uh, we, it was a wooden buck. And I sat in it and we literally agreed where everything was going to go. There's a little left-hand gear lever, and I'm, I'm like, okay, right, mm. I, want, I want that there, right there, steering mm. and this and that, because it's quite a narrow car. But it, it was just just a pure racing machine. The Venturi started just behind your backside where you're sitting in the cockpit, mm. and it had so much downforce. I'll never forget a race I did in Monza where I had to start from the pit lane, and I came round eighth out of 34 at the end of the first lap, and then about third and then second or something crazy. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they thought I'd crash because they were looking for me and they didn't realize I'd already gone past such. And it was half <laughs> wet and half dry and I had rooster tails of water coming out of the back of the mm. thing between the two Lesmos. And I was on slicks. The thing was just, had so much downforce, so much grip, mm. great little engine. It was, it was like an, a wide-bodied F1 car. So it, it just, it was totally, totally fit for purpose, that car. And, mm. and it was so elegant nothing extraneous hanging off it. I always think sports cars, and particularly Le Mans cars, are the most elegant race cars, or certainly were anyway, um, the uh, racing cars of all time. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was just a great car. That, that was a, mm. I was back in F1 by then, but I, I did a lot of... I was sort of the reserve driver, so I'd step mm. in one car with Derek Warwick, and then I'd step in the other car with Tia Fabi. Yeah. And that's why I ended like in Monza 91, I ended up first and second in the same race, um, yeah. for example. Yeah. So I'd, I'd, drive, I'd drive both of them. And then at Silverstone, which actually got me the Benetton job, at Silverstone, the throttle cable broke after a few laps. And I, they didn't want to put Derek in and, and lose his world championship points. So I think I was um, three laps behind or something like that. No, more than that. And I lost ten, no, I lost 10 minutes in the pits five or six laps behind and I drove the race single-handedly and finished third wow. uh, overall absolutely there to like throw a sponge in to get me out of the car because um, I was so dehydrated and, and out of sorts um, but that there's no doubt about it that race at Silverstone 91 you know elevated me and Ross and and, and well, not in Tom's eyes, but it gave Tom the ability to suggest I should go to Benetton for 92 and Ross was happy to take me yeah, no, I do remember all of that so well. 89, 90, 91, when I was at GWR, I remember when Ross arrived. It completely changed the face. And I think it really showed the world just that trading estate down at Kidlington with all those different units. It was remarkable what was turned out of there during that period with XJR14, with the XJR15, you know, the R9R as it was originally designated for the One Make series. All those things that came out of Kidlington at that time were just incredible, weren't they? Yeah, and not forgetting, because the Rovers and the Mazdas mm. and, yeah. you know, all the touring car programs yeah. that came out of there. And I still see quite a lot of the guys, uh, the, the TWR mm. guys around the about. Interestingly, do you remember Viv Cowley, who was one of your mechanics, both in IMSA and Group C? Um, Viv has a fantastic business in uh, Kidlington now. He builds custom-made motorcycles. And uh, 
He recently built one for a customer with APU unit, the auxiliary power unit, out of the back of a Learjet as an engine, a power plant in a motorcycle frame. So, and its, it's exhaust system is actually made from one of the Inconel exhaust pipes that he took with him uh, from the Daytona car in 1988. So there you go. Um, in 1990, getting back on track, yeah, obviously you were backwards and forwards doing things in IMSA, but you also did the IR, I think you did three races in IROC, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I remember the IROC races very well, but I do remember you were extremely competitive. And um, I think you took a pole and then won the first race or finished high up in the first race. But I do remember being there with Tony Dow. And when we got to the third race, one of the very great names of NASCAR racing came up to you and gave you a little bit of advice, didn't he? Can you remember what that was? Yeah, absolutely. No, it was it, Tony Dow made that happen for me. Got hold of uh, Jay and Barbara Signoria, IROC, International Racer Champions. Mm-hmm. And as I was a former World Sports Car Champion, I, I qualified for that. And I remember standing in the locker room of this truck, and it was like Emerson Fittipaldi, Dale Earnhardt, Darrell Waltrip, just Terry Labonte. It was just extraordinary. Danny Sullivan, extraordinary. I was sort of looking at the... Dymo tapes names on these <laughs> on these lockers and thinking this is this is incredible. And we I had a very good first race hooked up with Daryl Waltrip and came through at uh, where were we um, for for that first one? It wasn't Michigan. It, it might have been Talladega actually. I think it was Talladega actually. Yeah. And then we went to Cleveland and an airport circuit and um, I won that race uh, much to a few people's chagrin. Um, Al June, Alan for Junior was in it and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, Kerry Levante wasn't too too impressed that the kid from Europe had come over and won won that race, say the least. Um, but it was it was nice. So I went into the final round, leading the championship of this three race event, and that was at Michigan, which I found quite a challenging. Uh, another heavily banked oval. I, I'd never done ovals before at this point, mm. uh, of course. So. Um, yeah, I was on pole, and beside me was Al Jr. Behind me was Dale Earnhardt, and then Daryl Waltrip, the NASCAR boys. And uh, yeah, it got delayed by a day, and there was a big story because my son was due to be born, Alex, who's the, the, the sports car racer now, and he he was he uh, lives sort of hung on somehow because the race has rained off it's like and then, then you know big story in the local media will martin run off at home in time to see his child born we didn't know it's going to be a boy or a girl and so as i'm sitting on pole Ernard walks past my window the netting they have in nascar and just with a thousand yard stare on and his uh, sunglasses like don't forget your kids <laughs> and just kept just kept walking, never looked at me. <laughs> and somehow I don't know how he got underneath me on the well, the, the first start was waved off because they described it as an English start. I thought I was back in the pack up nicely personally. Yeah, and he yeah, yeah. um somehow in the second start, right? Those guys knew their business, but one of them had drawn the short straw to have me off into the barriers and that was um uh Rusty Wallace. Good Lord, it was, yeah. It, it was just the the uh I was angry at the time, but it was just the loveliest of touch, you know, because these cars are all are all cranked over to go around the oval, so they sort of hang low, left run, and they're, they're hugely unbalanced. So they start going sideways, you're you're in trouble, and uh, you're not going to pull them back. Uh, yeah, so Wallace tipped me into an elegant little spin, and that was that was the end of that. 
And you got home to see the kids. That was the important thing. <laughs> uh, there's so much we could talk about. Winning Le Mans in 1990 was incredibly special. And, you know, I, I'd been to Daytona that year as well when we had that fantastic one-two there. Um, what do you remember most about Le Mans 1990? Because obviously, you know, again, this special relationship, and I referred to it earlier, Tom always, I remember in the time I worked with you guys, he would call upon you at times of pressure. I saw him do it in Daytona when you did a double stint. I remember you getting out of the car and having to have ice bags put around your head because, you know, you dehydrated and your temperature was so high and things like that. He would call upon you to do things special. But what was Le Mans like when you got the call to get back in the car, you know, towards the end of the race? How did you feel? Yeah, it's great. To my chagrin, my name's not on the side of the winning car, but the whole concept that Tom had was to stretch the Porsches. Mm. And so he said to me on race morning, uh, right, I'm going to, I want you to go flat out. I'll keep you a space in one of the other cars, which of course was um, TWR IMSA team, the TWR USA's car eventually. So, you know, we just got to pressurize these guys. Go as fast as you can, um, as hard as you can. And, and we'll see what happens. And we were going really well. And I, I'm, I'm frustrated that I've only won Le Mans once, or been part of the winning team, I should say, once, because I've led it for Jaguar on a number of occasions, Bentley, Toyota, uh, and then something intervened, punctures or problems or, or whatever. Mm. But, um, and we, we did that, and eventually my car had a bizarre uh, water leak um, in a, a pipe, and it looks like it might have been faulty or whatever. And I remember Charlie coming up to me, the, the guy with, with Alan. Charlie Bamber. Yeah, Charlie Bamber. Oh. Uh, and Alan and all that came up to me on race morning and like, you have got the best engine we've ever put together. Uh, and they were like, this is a beauty. And it was a, it was a beauty, an absolute mm. beauty. Mm. Um, but it had some weird water pipe problem uh, or radiator, I can't remember exactly. So... Um, True to his word, and he, he kept uh, El, El, El Salazar out of the other car. We hadn't told him, which mm. was a bit uncomfortable. And of course, I got parachuted in. Tom kept his word completely, uh, and I got parachuted in. But the other car now, the, the American car, had glazed front brakes and was missing a gear. And I'll never forget coming in the pits uh, at the end of my first spin, and Tom stood at the front of the car. Got that and picture. He, yeah, he just looked mm. at me. And just thumb up and thumb down, and I just put my thumb up and like we're going to be all right. Um, and and you know the car was still quick enough. The Porsche, a lot of the Porsches were broken by now. Yeah. We've yeah. done our job in that respect, and um, we got the car home. Uh, and it was you know it was a one, wonderful day. I'll, I'll never forget John Nielsen trying to pull his wife Fibica, his then wife Fibica, up to the podium with three officials trying to pull her down the stairs. <laughs> I was going to break in the middle at one point. It was really bizarre going up, but it was lovely on the podium with Tom and Sir John Egan and and with Price Cobb and, and mm. that. And you know, we did a good job to 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 win that race. And it's a mighty effort from a a team with five cars, fifteen drivers, you know, one hundred and thirty five mm. people there. A Grand Prix season in a day, in terms of back then, in terms of the the distance you're going to cover, mm. logistically, made Formula One look a bit. Bit easy, frankly. It was it was a massive undertaking, 
and a brilliant TWR team that, that were, you know, they were really honed and fine-tuned and, and people who'd been with Tom a long time, people loyal to Tom. Um, mm. we all, we're all loyal to Tom. We all, we all like racing with him and for him um, and being in his gang, as it were. So it, it, it was a, a truly wonderful experience. I'm really glad you used the words gang because at Tom's memorial service in Gloucester Cathedral, when you um, read out eulogy, you made the comment, and I've used it several times, you knew you were special if you were part of Tom's gang. And it certainly made me and many of us that were in you know, the church or in the cathedral that day glow with pride. What made you feel that, say that? What made you feel that way? Well, because... He was a. He was a. I mean, he didn't suffer fools, did he at all? No, um, at all. He could get a bit angry. And he mm. just had to weather that. Um, but he was a. I'm going this way. Follow me, or exactly. or, or get out of the way. <laughs> just go, mm. go and do something else. He was a leader of people and a, and a motivator of people. And he was a, a total petrol head, a, a real, a real racer, a hard racer. Um, mm. And and I, I think that I think that's what it is. You're in his tribe, really, and and off you went. And good good people can handle somebody who's rather demanding. Uh, and so you, it's a good it's a great filter of people around you. Yeah. You know, yeah. and sometimes he was unreasonable and overly overly angry or aggressive and and pushy. But you know, strong people can handle that and realise that 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 phase will pass and he's a good bloke to be around and, and you know you, you have to remember that whether it's Keith the Truckee or whether it's whoever it is you all want to win the mechanics the, mm. whatever your role in the team you like to be part of a winning team that's that's what mo- drives motor racing people to because the Le Mans 24 hours is a 36 hour event as you know mm. well you mm. get up for the warm up and if you finish the race, it's going to be 36 hours later before you even think of seeing the bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, you, that that kind of human endeavor for everybody in the team is, is really impressive. And so you need uh, to be following a leader to, to buy into all that. No, very, very well put. I mean, it, it was a great experience working and a great privilege working with him and you and all the other guys. And in fact, last year at Blenheim, when we had our JEC Summer Festival, we had the 88th car there with Andy Wallace and nearly 70 of the TWR gang were pulled together by Andy King and myself. And it was really lovely seeing people again. A bit grayer and a bit paunchier, but fantastic. You know, and the old flames still burn. Um, we're coming to the close because I'm very mindful of your time. Um, I must say I'm extremely grateful to our regular podcast presenter Wayne Scott for putting us together today but Wayne has been listening to this all the way through and I'm sure he's absolutely gagging to ask you a question before he hands back to me um, to say thank you very much so Wayne over to you well it's been fantastic eavesdropping as I feel I've been doing over the last 30 minutes here and hearing some of those incredible stories and uh, Martin the first time I met you in person was after the 1990 win at Le Mans when you did a UK tour with the car and that to stand in cathedral squares up and down the UK taking pictures with uh, children as I was then Um, but you've had experience of the modern race now how special was it racing in that Zytec Nissan uh, that Greaves Motorsport put together with Alex all these years later? And was it still the same race that you remembered? Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, after after the Le Mans victory, we went to a lot of Jaguar factories as well. I think we signed 3,000 autographs in a day. 
um, people. It was one. It was a wonderful experience. Um, yeah, doing, going back to do Le Mans, which is a track I love, and often people will ask me what's my favourite circuit in the world, and I'll always include Le Mans, and it's surprising because they always think I'm just going to say Monaco and Spa and, and Suzuka or something, which are also great tracks, of course. Um, but uh, to, to to race with your son. Uh, in an event you love, and, and he was 20 at the time, I think. Um, I, I felt it was a bit crazy when I strapped him in in the middle of the night and, and gave him the quick heads up on what the track was like and and any issues with the car, and um, and then watched him disappear into the into the darkness, knowing full well that within 45 seconds he'll be doing 200 miles an hour. I, it's kind of like, well, what are you doing, Martin? This is madness, but... He handled it well, of course, because youngsters do. Um, and when I finished the race, when we had a one drama with a, a belt, otherwise we'd had a great result, but finished the race, and I was almost tearful crossing the line because it, it just felt so emotional, actually. A little bit like, you know, back in the days when we were winning, winning, those, winning the races and the championships, whatever, but um, super experience, a real father-son and family experience, you know, my wife and my daughter were there as well, and and just and my extended family. So it was, you know, just that, and to be able to share that experience, we still talk about it today, from time to time. Alex is now a professional sports car racer, but um, you know, to to have that, to be able to talk about, you know, what it was like breaking into Mulsan Corner at night, whether the gravel was around or the oil or whatever stranded car, or all of those personal experiences that. You know, probably nobody else could quite relate to. So it, it, it was great. And we raced again a couple of times in the, in the old Nordschleife, the Nürburgring last year. We had a great race together as well. So, uh, and I raced for fun, of course, and now I'm turned 60s. But um, it, it was good. But it, 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 I don't know. I don't think I was any less intense than when I was a works driver, frankly. You still want to do the best but you could you probably just take a breath and have a look around and understand it enjoy it absorb the downtown on the friday night when you when the crowd are out and you you parade around the town of, of le mans just hoover that up and just you know embrace it a little more than when you're just going to head into a, into a works drive because i'd never seen I'd never been to the fairground at Le Mans. I'd been there so many times as a driver. I'd never been until I started going and watching Alex. Now I, I'll go out. If he's doing a, a triple stint at night, I will walk down to Porsche Curves, back up to Dunlop, and then through the back, maybe try to get to Tetra Rouge if I can. It's quite a long walk, actually, but um, that means I can really go and enjoy Le Mans um, in that respect, which... Uh, when you're driving it, you see none of that. So it was, it was a tremendous experience. And the, and the advice that you must give Alex, is that different advice now for a young driver than perhaps you were given when you were were coming up the ranks? How different do you think it is now for Alex as it was for you back then? Yeah, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not sure it's changed a whole lot um, in that you know, a car has a certain amount of power, a certain amount of grip. It has a limit. You know, an engine two or three pedals, some mechanism to shift gears, you know, the, the fundamentals are drive to the limit of your grip, um, don't run into other things, think the long game in the sports car races, you have to do, you have to think of fuel consumption, but you always did. Um, 
So, so the, the absolute fundamentals of, of it are identical in my in my view, and that goes back to Fangio and to Sterling uh, uh, as well. Drive to the drive to the limit of the grip and performance that you have for as long as you can, and try to get there first. But um, then, of course, you know they've got so many more analysis sim simulators and analysis and sensors and data and you know, don't cross over the pedals and, you know, they can give you any number of sheets of graph paper to show you where you should be doing something slightly different. It, it is, it's less uh, experience-based now, I think, than it probably was. And I don't, I don't say that in a negative way because like in Formula One, they just transferred their skills elsewhere. You know, back, back before we had 150 centers on the car and a load of simulators and data, the, the, drive, the driver and the engineer would work out gear ratios and, and roll bars. But, you know, if you've got some of the cars I drove in Formula 1, if you arrived at the apex in the right gear, pointing in the right direction and generally making a bit of progress, you, you've done well. Now, if you break a meter or two too early, you, you've blown the corner because, it, you know, the cars are so good. So the, the skills are transferred to be accuracy rather than experience and survival but uh, i don't you know i don't think that's it's not that i'm saying it's any better or worse so um there's only so much experience i can give alex and that's when he asks me i don't proffer any advice unless he asks me well as the man probably closer to f1 than most uh what do you think about the rest of the season this year and the problems that we have and and formula one's future from this moment uh, uh is there anything they can share with us from the inside well, formula one was supposed to be celebrating its 70th anniversary it's got a huge momentum history heritage around the world you can't rest on those laurels of course and and there are challenges going forward but you know, the, the only sports on a global basis bigger than us are the Olympics and the World Cup, and they happen once every four years. So we have this incredibly popular business. And, you know, if you put Max Verstappen in a Red Bull down any given high street, you'll get a crowd turning out, see that just go up and down, that most sports would die for. So it, it is, it's a very popular business. It's a very expensive business. And we've got a, I'm hoping common sense is going to break out and that, we're, uh, because the way we were, we were unsustainable anyway before this pandemic. So I think that we will get up and running here, probably in Austria. Um, there will be a number of European venues, possibly with two races uh, on consecutive weekends at some of them. And then it will venture out as far as we're allowed to go. And I think that's changing daily. So um, I'm finishing up probably in the Middle East, in Bahrain and Abu Dhabi. If we can get to the Americas and if we can get to the Far East, then great. But uh, I think right now everybody's focused on trying to make it happen in Austria. And then we'll see how far we get thereafter. I think there will be a Formula One championship of some sort. We may well start the season not knowing how many races and points are available, which will be fascinating. Um, But at the same time, if there's a second wave of this pandemic and we go into a semi or full lockdown again, then I think we're in, we're all in trouble, frankly. And I'd be very concerned about these 
sustainability of some of the teams. Martin, it's been a real pleasure. I've been talking to some of the guys, Alan Scott and Tony Dow on a conference call. Uh, obviously, they send their best regards and I shall do the same with you going back. Be safe and thank you so much for sharing those memories with Wayne, myself and of course, everyone that's going to be listening into the JEC podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you, Richard. And uh, best regards to everybody. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jcpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder preferably, or of course you can use the contact form there as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jcpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure you get the latest copy of the Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Until our next podcast, see you next time. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.